From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and we're going to do a show this time that I've been thinking about for a while. Some of you often ask about it. I realize, as I often do, that it really is something that we need to talk about because it's both more difficult and easier than it seems to understand. And that is gender. And no, I don't mean the rather complex and often loaded way that we talk about it in terms of society, but I mean more locally, gender in languages. And for an English speaker, it is the challenge of, for example, approaching French or Spanish, which are often the first foreign languages that we're exposed to if we speak English. You find that for some reason, all nouns are divided between being, for example, masculine and feminine. You can't quite understand why. And we have to make a very important differentiation here. This is something you learn about in linguistics. I don't mean easy gender. I mean dum-dum gender. So there's a difference between gender that actually makes sense because you're talking about, for example, boys and girls or men and women. I don't mean gender like in Spanish where you're talking about a little cat and if it's a boy, it's a gatito. And if it's a girl, it's a gatita. O for something that shaves and ah for something that does not shave its face, something like that. Not that kind of gender, but the kind of gender that frankly doesn't make any sense where you just kind of have to know. We call this the difference between biological gender, as in stags and does, as opposed to grammatical gender where you just kind of have to know. So for example, Spanish for hat, sombrero, that's masculine, whereas the word for house is feminine. So houses are girls somehow. Nobody thinks of it that way. It's just the way Spanish has to do it. So casa. All right. And in Spanish, it's kind of easy in that so very often the O is masculine and the A is feminine. But of course, there are exceptions that you just have to know. So for hand, mano, it ends in an O, but it's la mano. It's feminine. And well, you just have to deal with it. And then Spanish is nice to you in that way relatively, but then with French, which is its close relative, but still it's a different story, these things are harder. And so, for example, a boat is a bateau, and a moon is a lune. Well, bateau is masculine, lune is feminine. Now, if you just listen to those two words, bateau and loon, to use a really good French accent, you don't hear any cues like O's and A's. And if you're talking about writing, well, loon has that E at the end, which is often silent or it can be pronounced in some circumstances. It's kind of there. But if you try to think that that E hanging off of the end means feminine, French just smacks you in the face much more than Spanish does with words ending in A that are masculine. So you know, the world, you know, name of that whole newspaper, Le Monde, it's got that little thing on the end. You just, you just have to know. So this grammatical gender, which I sometimes call dum-dum gender in my mind, it's a real challenge for an English speaker, and one might want to know, why does a language do that? Especially because if you get to something like German, well, it's just, it's disgusting. And so, for example, silverware, you've got a spoon, it's a löffel. Well, the spoon is masculine. You've got a fork, it's a gobble. There's no ah at the end, there's no little e at the end, gobble. Löffel, gobble. To, you know, to me, they both sound like very German words, but gobble is feminine. You just have to know. A fork is a girl. And then a knife, messer. That's neuter. So you just kind of have to know. In German, I remember learning it when I was a teen and realizing, oh, goodness, the gender is really going to kick me in the buttocks. And that is true with German. Rules of thumb, sure. But to an extent, you just have to know, what is that? So here I am, this Anglophone, and I want to say, why does a language have that? But, you know, I'm not asking the right question. I'm asking that as somebody who doesn't know that he's in a very parochial position. It's kind of like um, a person in Denmark or Norway who has white skin, who starts to get to know people from other parts of the world. Let's make this, you know, it's a Viking. It's a very long time ago, and it's harder to know anybody from anywhere else. And you notice that as you go really east, then people have this, you know, what's often called yellowish coloring instead of being just white. And as you go south, you start getting people who are very dark brown. And if you are going with Leif Erikson, then you notice that over in North America, there are these indigenous people, and they're kind of brown too. 
And you're always wondering, well, how come they're so dark? And you don't know that from a global perspective, the question is, how come you're so light? Because, of course, it's actually only a sliver of humans that happen to have that white color that happened in Europe for the most part. But really, the default human happens to have more melanin than that. I'm bringing that up only because for me to ask, why do other languages put nouns into these meaningless classes of dum-dum gender is naive in that the real question is, why doesn't English do it? And the reason for that is that if you take most of the languages of Europe and trace them back to that original one on the steppes of Ukraine, that original language, Proto-Indo-European, that we can reconstruct with a fair degree of confidence, that language had dum-dum gender. It had masculine, feminine, and neuter. Or rather, another way of putting it is that it is normal for Indo-European languages to have grammatical gender. So, you know, German has got its three genders. So does Slavic. Greek has genders. The Baltic languages, Lithuanian and Latvian, they seem to have everything, sometimes tone. They sure as hell have gender. Armenian has gender of a sort. It's not called that in terms of how we analyze it, but nouns are divided into arbitrary classes, and you know, it doesn't have to be called masculine, feminine. Still, you've got that problem in then. Albanian has got it. That's the way it goes. And so the question is, why is English so naked? If you look around Europe, the languages that don't have gender are ones that aren't Indo-European. So Finnish doesn't have it, but Finnish is Uralic. Basque doesn't have it, but Basque is all by itself. It's what we call a language isolate. It's not related to anything anymore. There surely used to be more Basque-related languages. Probably they didn't have gender. But if you're Indo-European, you're supposed to have meaningless grammatical gender. So English doesn't have it. What happened in English is that there was a conflict between Old English, which did have it because Old English was a normal language, and then the language that the Scandinavian invaders from what is now Denmark and Norway spoke. They spoke a closely related Germanic language. This would have been Old Norse, and Old Norse had three genders too. But the problem is, you might think that if they come and they have their masculine, feminine, and neuter, and English has its, Old English has its masculine, feminine, and neuter, well, okay, then whatever happens, then English is going to stay with those three. But no, when there are conflicts like that, often what people do is throw up their hands and just toss the complicated thing, especially if you don't need it to communicate. And we, as English speakers, know that you can communicate at least fairly well without dividing things into arbitrary classes. You don't have to pretend that your silverware is sexed, for example, to be a relatively sophisticated person. And so, talk about German today. Spoon, löffel, masculine. Fork, gobel, feminine. And messer, knife, neuter. Well, in Old English, you had words for those three things, but they didn't match up. And so, for example, the word for fork wasn't gobble, but goffle. But goffle was masculine. Their word in Old English, oh, I didn't say it right, goffle. Their word in Old English for spoon was kugler instead of löffel. But löffel in German is masculine. Kugler was feminine. And then knife did match up. And so messe in German is neuter. And then Old English had sach. Sach, and that was neuter. But, you know, they don't match. Old Norse was the same thing, was actually even weirder. Their words for fork, knife, and spoon, what, what's the Old Norse voice? <laughs> All right, I'm going to try this. Forker, kniefer, span. That's the Old Norse voice. And Old Norse had those three, but they were all masculine. So you can imagine, you know, the Old Norse come and, you know, they have a sense that their nouns divide up into these classes and they might learn enough Old English to perceive that Old English had the same thing too. But things don't match. Another example, um, head in Old English is halfed, halfed. And you say that enough and you have today's head. It was a longer word then. It was halfed. But then in Old Norse, the word was hoofed. It was hoofed. So Halfed, hoofed. They're the same word that, you know, happened to experience different fates on different landmasses. But the thing is, Old English's halfed was masculine, hoofed was neuter. Well, you know, what happens in a situation like that is that, in a way, people just say, screw it, let's just talk about heads and not have any damn gender. And so that is why English doesn't 
have this kind of gender. It was because of an accident. It's because people shaved the language down, but only because of that. If that hadn't happened, then we wouldn't find gender so odd in English because it would still have it. Dialects down in the South, such as of Cornwall, way up into the 1800s actually had remnants of meaningless gender of that kind. It's the way English, in a way, should be. It was an accident that meant that it doesn't have it. And even today, some of you are thinking Old Norse had the three But Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish often only have two. And that's because of a whole different story about what happened to those three languages in contact with a kind of German called Low German, even though it's spoken up high in the country. Low Germans came and gave Old Norse a shave and created languages that have two genders instead of one. All of this is to show that it isn't just normal for a language to chuck its gender. Generally, if it has something like that, it's going to keep it. And Persian is an Indo-European language spoken over in Asia. It doesn't have gender, and it has a very English-like story. Back to our program, so to speak. The question is, why does Spanish have that? Well, even if you know that English doesn't have it because English is weird, you still might want to know. And it is an interesting question. Why did Proto-Indo-European divide nouns up into classes in some meaningless way? If language is supposed to be about clarity, if language is supposed to correspond to culture, if language is supposed to make sense, then what is this with gender that goes beyond the business of gatito and gatita, where it actually refers to something in the world? And the truth is that there is no written documentation of a language taking on dum-dum gender. Once the language is written down, the dum-dum gender is already there. So I can't tell you that you can see as a language changes over time on paper how this sort of thing developed, because it happens that the dum-dum gender that we know all happened before writing. Because remember, writing only happens at the very tail end of the existence of human speech. So you go back 5,500 years, that's the first writing. Language surely existed for 200,000 years before that. And these days, we're beginning to think it may have even been 2 million, but certainly a couple hundred, maybe 300,000. So we only have this little sliver of written documentation of language at all. And you know, the truth is, the truth is that if we could see grammatical gender beginning to happen now in some language that's written, it would be something that would largely only be being done out on the ground among people speaking colloquially, because people would think of this development of grammatical gender as some kind of mistake. You just know that's the way it would happen. So it would be nice to chart it happening somewhere, but it's human nature that unless it was universal, people would be reluctant to write it down. An example is, um, we are developing an irregular verb in English. Like if you kind of envy languages like Italian for having all those difficult irregular verbs, whereas ours seem to be less intimidating, you know, think, thought, okay, but that's not like what Spanish does with its verb for to have tenere. Tengo, and then tu tienes, el tiene, and then you've got tuvo for had. It's a glorious mess. And you say, well, how come we don't have that? We just have our verb to be, which is a mess. But wouldn't it be nice if we had other ones? Well, there's one coming. And so it comes from that sort of colloquial quotative. So I'm all, you better not take my pen. And then you're all, but all I have is a pencil. And then she's all, why don't you two just calm down? You know, you know that thing there? And it's interesting. If we were a language spoken, say, in the rainforest, unwritten, with nobody bothering it, it's just minding its business. I'm all, you're all, he's all, would be on its way to becoming this new verb that means to say, after a while, people would forget that it started as he's all and imitating somebody. It would just become this verb, and it would be I, maw, you, raw, he's all. I'm all, you're all, he's all. People listening to that and distorting it over the years, there'd be this irregular verb, maw, raw, zaw. But it'll never happen because we can't help but hear I'm all, you're all as smelling kind of like bazooka, bubblegum, or hashish or something. It's considered not real language. And so this is how things like crazy gender develop, but it would be difficult for it to be accepted in many societies because it would be something new. It's the crime of the century that we can't use things like that in formal writing. 
Crime of the Century. You know, it is time for a song, and there is a song called that. It's from the musical Ragtime. And the composer of this, Stephen Flaherty, is a little underrated. People don't talk about him. I wonder if he's a retiring person. He's a really good melodist. He's a fantastic harmonist. And in Ragtime, he has to write a lot of things that actually sound like ragtime, and goodness, he channels Scott Joplin beautifully. This is about the Stanford White murder on a rooftop while he's watching a musical sometime in the aughts, and a former mistress of his is now husband is crazy and jealous of him and shoots him. And now here is the former mistress making a career out of it. This actually happened. This is Evelyn Nesbitt. Of course, this isn't her singing. This is Crime of the Century. At the age of 15, your honor, then I went and married Mr. Harry Thaw. Eccentric millionaire. And, you know, after a song like that, well, maybe I, with your indulgence, can do the part where I say that you could listen to a version of this episode without me doing any ads or anybody else, and you'd get more. You'd get a little tag at the end where you get more fun fact wrapped up in the bazooka gum package sort of information where we could have a little bit more time together, like on old sitcoms. But the only way that you can get this ad-free version of the show with the little tag at the end, and then also have that with all of the other Slate podcasts, is to sign up for something called Slate Plus. You do it at slate.com slash lexicon plus on this show. And what happens is that for a nominal fee, just a few dozens of dollars from what I've heard, you can have really an additional experience and a cleaner experience. And frankly, it really helps Slate in these times that are difficult for reasons that I do not need to specify. And so if you want to know about how sexy making the plural was in English when it was real English instead of this thing that I'm speaking now, the only way you can know is to subscribe to Slate Plus today. We can't know how grammatical gender develops by watching it happen on paper, but we can make a good guess at how it happened by looking at various languages now that are at different stages along the lines of developing something like this. So you can learn after a while that you can see mountains and you can see sand. Well, sand is rocks ground down, and so it's a cycle. After a while, the sand gets thrown up and becomes mountains again after going under the ocean, etc., whatever that cycle is. Or you know, today we can look at amoeba, we can see sponges, then you see frogs, then you see crocodiles, and you see platypuses, and you can see mammals like okapis, my favorite mammal. And you can look at them and you can, after a while, deduce that mammals came from what started as reptiles and amphibians and reptiles started from what originally were sponges and so on. So you don't watch it happen. We cannot watch an amoeba become a giraffe, but we can see how that process worked. So same thing with grammatical gender. We can know how it happened by looking at the different places that various languages are at. And what is clear is that what becomes grammatical gender that largely doesn't make any sense starts as classes that actually make sense. And then things drift because language always drifts, language always gets messy, just like mountains erode and become sand. And so, for example, what you see as dum-dum gender in some language now can start with something like what we see in the Chinese languages today. And what we see is something that happens, for example, with numbers. So, Mandarin. This is the word for three. San. This is the word for cat. 
I kid you not that the word for cat is mal, like meow, mal, probably onomatopoeic. So how do you say three cats? San mal, no, no, you don't say that. You have to say san ju mal. You have to have that little ju in there. And if you don't, well, you, you sound like an idiot. Well, if you have that, then what about something like a, a river? Three rivers. San, that's three. River. Huh? Okay. So is it san ju huh? No, you, no, it's a different one. You have to say san tiao huh? So it's tiao. You have to stick that in there. So the one with cat is one thing. Zhi. The one with river is another thing. Tiao. It's because they're different shapes. Or they have different essences. There's one of these things for animals. Then there's one thing for long, ropey things like rivers, as opposed to flat things. If you're talking about a bed, chuang, well, you have three beds. Certainly not san chuang. No, you have to have san zhang chuang. Zhang is for flat things. So when you have a number, you have to jam that little thing in. The only way to make sense of that in English is with an expression like, you can say three cows, but you can also say three head of cattle. You know that weird expression, three head of cattle. Well, you just say it. That's something that you do with certain animals. You have to do a lot more of that in Chinese. So you've got one for animals. You've got one for long things. You've got one for flat things. You've got one for people. So three people. Sanren is baby Chinese. Sangren, you have to have the g. Those are called numeral classifiers. And the thing is, notice that they're dividing nouns into classes. This is gender because we are used to, because of certain European languages, it being about masculine and feminine and markers like O and A that otherwise are used to encode actual biological differences. And so we think, well, gender gets weird in that all these different things are called boys and girls. But actually, you can have a lot more than just two things like that. It can go beyond gender. The real essence of it, if you look at languages all over the world that has this, is this business of dividing nouns into arbitrary classes. It may be pretending that they're boys and girls, but it might be dividing them between humanity and different shapes and different essences. And very, very, very many languages have many more than two or three. So the numeral classifiers are that same genius, to use definition two of genius. It's the same gender thing. The larger concept is we say noun classes. That's what's going on here. So you have the noun classes. Now, that's the way that you do it in Mandarin. But you can take it further and you start seeing the beginning of things like boats being boys and moons being girls. So here's how it goes further. And you can actually tell in a different Chinese language, Cantonese. And so in Mandarin, you use these numeral classifiers with numbers and in some other cases, but just for heuristic purposes with the numbers. In Cantonese, more than in Mandarin, you don't even have to have the number there. You can just have these little classifier words just sitting there to mean roughly something like this, something like a. Uh. And so, for example, table, toy in Cantonese. Now, a flat table, a table is going to be something like a bed in Mandarin. It's flat. What's the thing for flat? It's jung. And so one way to say roughly a table, this table here is jung toy. Like that. You don't even have a number. It's just that thing there. But you can't think, well, the way to say kind of a uh or this in Cantonese is junk because you only use that with something flat like a table. If you've got something long and skinny like a pen, then it's ji. And so the word for pen, I guess one word for pen is bat. And so ji bat. And that's a pen, but not jung bot, but ji bot. Then if it's a button, a little round, cute, little he 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 thing, well, no is the word for button. But for that one, the little classifier word is lop. And so lop no, lop no. That's how you say kind of a button, this kind of button here. And it doesn't have to be four buttons or something like that. It's pretty close to just a button. That's Stage two, because first it's only about numbers. It's like three head of cattle. But then imagine if we could say something like head cattle, but then we had something else like flatty table. And you just say that. And pretty soon you have to say that quite a bit. 
Next thing you know, you've got these markers of what we think of as gender or noun classes. And so you end up going to somewhere like Papua New Guinea to see the next step. Because we think of, for example, it's not only on the noun, but for example, a red hat is un sombrero rojo. But then a red house is una casa roja. Well, how do you get that? Well, first you get the marker, and then after a while you start kind of stuttering it because you're thinking of it as just marking something as part of a noun class rather than it being literal at all. So there's a language called Nasioi, language spoken by a small group of people in Papua New Guinea, utterly obscure. But one neat thing about Nasioi is that they have about 200 of these genders, and of course. I think most of us would have a hard time conceiving of 200 of what we call genders. And so really, we're talking about noun classes. But to speak it, you just have to know which one of these noun classes something fits into. But here, you have the repeat marking. And so, for example, you can talk about three cats in Mandarin, where you have sanju mao, and you have the ju. Well, in Nasioi, if you're going to say something like these three lakes inland, well, the way you say it is lake three, this three, and then this three inland. So if you're talking about a lake, it's ntona. If you're talking about the three part, the word for three, be. If you're talking about something being inland, atang. Okay. So the way that you would do that is you have to say ntona ru, be ru, pi, aru, dang. So you heard the ru, that's three times. That's because the class, the noun class that the lake belongs to. You have to have it on everything that's describing the lake as well. So you start with something like numeral classifiers that pretty transparently divide things up into what they're like, how they differ from each other. Then after a while, it's not just with numbers, it's just kind of hanging on to it, kind of like some sort of epithet. And then after a while, those little epithets start spreading throughout the sentence, and suddenly you have la Casa Blanca. It's just one of those things. It's time for the song cue that doesn't make any sense at all. And you know what it's going to be? Because we're talking about cats. I have a way of calling my Gracie. And the way I do it is this. I go... <whistles> Gracie always comes to that little whistled melody. And you know what that is? It's the most random thing. I don't know why I started using it. There's a musical from 1955 called Ankles Away. It was as stupid as that title sounds. I'm not even going to bother to describe it. But it was just Velveeta cheese, but slightly gone bad. If it ever does, I hear it doesn't. But you know, something must happen to it. If it did, and they made a musical that summoned the tone of Velveeta that's gone bad, that was Ankles Away. And it was delightful in a way that means that collectors cherish it as something that's just kind of good-bad. One of the good-bad songs in it is There's Nothing That Can Replace a Man. And that little thing that I whistle is just when one of the leads is singing this forgettable but catchy song and she does a little dance at a certain point a little can can and for some reason i thought that would be a way to call a cat cat so here is that part of the song Jackman cloth to take the place of woolen samsonite to take the place of leather light bulbs that replace a summer tan but all throughout the world of science no one's found a new appliance That most men are as sharp as arrows But without those guys We're strictly for the worms and sparrows Filtered air replacing ventilation TV sets replacing conversation Mambo has replaced the old can-can But here's a tip and you can bank it There is no electric blanket That ever can replace Mike, play the little can-can again. See? That's what, that's what that is. So this gives you a sense of how you get 
sombreros and casas and things like that. But the thing is, I'm talking about things that make a certain amount of sense. Tables are flat, you know, cats are animals. How does it get arbitrary? How does it become that thing that is so hard, for example, for an English speaker to wrap their mind around? And the truth is that you already see the beginnings of that with Asian languages like the ones that I'm talking about that have these classifiers, because they're not as tidy as I'm implying. They're ones that don't make sense already, or they made sense culturally, you know, thousands of years ago, but now they don't anymore. To an extent, you have to just learn which classifiers to use. And what this means is that even to be a speaker of these languages is not to see the things in question as lining up with what the classifiers happen to be. The classifiers, to an extent, are just random grammar that you take in as a toddler, and by the time you realize it doesn't make sense, well, you're grown up and you're in therapy and you know, you're, you're busy, and so you can't think about it. But, for example, there have been psychological experiments done. In Mandarin, you've got scissors, umbrellas, and eels. It's a language, and so, of course, you can refer to all of those things. Now, Mandarin uses the same classifier, ba, for scissors and umbrellas. Ba, for example, is supposed to mean things you can pick up. And think about how general that is. There are all sorts of things you can pick up, i.e. most things that are not ba. You kind of have to know which things you can pick up is ba. But you can pick up some scissors, you can pick up some umbrellas, and so ba, Then eel is something different. It's that tiao that we saw for rivers. That makes some sense. Rivers and eels are shaped kind of the same. But the thing is, if you ask Mandarin speakers, all right, here's some scissors, here's an umbrella, and here's an eel, which of them go together? They do not, in any significant way, tend to think that the scissors and the umbrellas go together. They're just as likely to group two others that don't happen to have the same classifier. So they don't feel it that way. And that's not just something about being a speaker of Mandarin Chinese. It's Thai, too. Thai has that same kind of structure. And talk about, actually, in the Thai experiment, it's umbrellas, eels, and tables. And so for eels and tables, Thai used the same thing because, of course, eels and tables are so similar. See what I mean by these things are even hard already. But then there's another one for umbrellas. And so you ask people, well, what's what's the same? And, you know, big surprise, the typical Thai person does not say, well, eels and tables are kind of similar. And that's because we say tua for them and khan for umbrellas. Really, they have all sorts of ways they group them together. So what's going on in the language is, to a large extent, even in these languages where the gender makes a certain amount of sense, the grammar is somewhat independent from the way that people are thinking about the world they actually live in. It's already, to an extent, the way that so much of culture just jangles along, like throwing rice at people at a wedding, to the extent that people still do it. I don't think I've ever actually seen it done. But then I haven't been to that many weddings, and so maybe it's still common. But Uncle Ben's and people are throwing that shit all over the ground. I'm sure there's a history to it, but most people who are doing it aren't thinking about that. Or, for example, I think it's going to be this way until I I die, except I'm not going to die. So until I don't die. But I always am thinking on Saturday morning around 8 a.m. that what I'm supposed to be doing is laying on my stomach in front of a 13-inch color television set watching Saturday morning cartoons for four hours. That just lingers in me, and that's not what I do now on Saturday morning, but there's a part of me that always feels like whatever I'm doing is not watching Hong Kong Fooey and the Bugs Bunny show on the floor. And that's just always going to be in me because that was American kid culture in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the reasons for that were rather arbitrary. You know, what was that? Why Saturday morning? Why those particular times? How did that happen? That is a lot of how culture works. And so you end up with the sort of dum-dum aspect, even in the languages where it makes a certain amount of sense, because it only makes so much sense. And what people are thinking and living is different from what people are saying. So it's starting not to make sense at the stage that you see in, for example, 
the Chinese languages. Oh, and by the way, you know, I've gotten confident enough about my Mandarin that I just read it off knowing that I sound like a child and probably a very strange child, but I'm comprehensible. I'm never going to feel that way about Cantonese. And what I was just doing was speaking according to a recording given to me by my student, Vanessa Ho. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for putting up with my wanting to know how to say such mundane things. In any case, we can go further with, for example, a language in Australia called Jerbal. And you could use any number of Australian languages, but this one happens to have been really studied. The question is, how do you get to hats as boys and houses as girls and that being most of it, where really it's just all the way gone? With these Asian languages, you have to dig a little bit to find what doesn't make sense. But these European gender systems, goodness gracious. Well, you can't see it happening on paper, but you can look at Jirbal and you can see how this sort of thing would have happened. So, for example, in this language, nominally, they've got a noun class system that makes sense. And so you've got one class that is men and then animals. Then you've got another class that's women and then animals that are associated for one reason or another with femininity, often you know for folkloristic or cultural reasons. And interestingly, fire and fighting. So men, animals, but then women, and then, you know, Bambi's mother or something like that, and then fire and fighting. And that might feel counterintuitive, but it also makes perfect sense if you know the whole cosmological system of the people. And then you've got another group that is trees with fruit, which of course is important if you're living on the land. Then you've got another group that's everything else. So guys, women, trees with fruit, everything else. Now, you can look at that and you can think what an interesting cosmological system reflected in the language. But the truth is, if you look more closely, you see that it's not that easy. There's an awful lot that you really just kind of have to know. And that's partly because people can't help noticing patterns and there are aspects of how the words sound that can be confusing. And over the years, people make quote unquote mistakes that end up just sticking and becoming what the grammar of the language is. And so, for example, there's a word for crayfish. It's yigara, yigara. That should be in that men class, because that's where most animals are. And the folklore doesn't have crayfish as you know being associated with women for any particular reason. And so that should be in class one with the men. But it's in class two. It's in the women class, not because crayfish are considered girlish in some way, but because the word is yigara and the word for woman is yibi. So there's a natural sense that, well, if it begins with ye, it's going to be with this group of women words, not only because of womanness, but because of yeness. And so ye. So it moved over there. And there's some other words that did that. Or talk about these little things that taste good. Shrimp. Mawa. Mawa is in two. But a shrimp is an animal. And again, shrimp aren't thought to be feminine in the cosmology. But still, mawa is in the girl class. And it shouldn't be. It should be in the male class with just animals in general. But it ends up being in the woman class because, as it happens, a lot of words in the woman class happen to begin with ma just by chance. It's just this chance configuration. But if you're speaking the language, you might think that ye is feminine because of ye be meaning woman. And you might think that ma means something is feminine because so many of the words in that class begin with ma. So next thing you know, you have these relocations. And so what this means is that one thing after another happens like that, where it starts as something that makes sense in the cosmology, but then the sounds pattern in ways that make people mess it up bit by bit by bit. And next thing you know, you have a system where what happened with Jirbal is that it looks at first, once you get beyond the men and the women, like just quite random. You can work hard to find what the pattern is, but knowing that there's so many exceptions that you can't help feeling like you didn't do the whole job. I'm putting myself in the mind of people who've studied this before. I was not one of them. But you can make more sense of it by reconstructing that sounds kind of screwed it all up. Um, my friend Masha Polinsky, along with Keith Plaster, I think he was actually the lead author of the article, but they're the ones who worked out that sound and some other things have a lot to do with why Jirbal makes a certain amount of sense, but fundamentally is just messy. So with that kind of thing, you know, you fast forward several thousands of years and you've got the male hats and the female moons and nothing makes any sense because now it's been as much about sound patterns as about whatever cosmology Proto-Indo-European speakers had that 
made them divide things up into these classes. And you know, the truth is, probably even at that point, it was arbitrary. These things making sense may have been much further back. It may have been 10,000, 12,000, you know, some people running around somewhere in Siberia, possibly, or maybe it was down in India. We can't take it that far back yet. But still, these things hold on. As I said quite recently, languages do not naturally just chuck off things that are complicated and simplify for no reason. And there's no more eloquent testament to that than the fact that, for example, a German or a Russian today have this meaningless gender and it's being passed on to children as we speak. Suffering little babies are learning this as we speak. And it's certainly been in existence for possibly tens of thousands of years. Kind of like a song from 1982 by Fonda Ray that I remember well, that I still have on a cassette because my friends and I liked it. I don't know what happened to Fonda Ray. I don't know what happened to this song. It was called Over Like a Fat Rat. It's a rather unclassifiable late 70s, early 80s R&B song. It's specifically 82, but it's just, it's queer, it's catchy, it's beautifully arranged. It now sounds very dated, but you know, many things that sound very dated, unlike Ankles Away, are still good. This is a little bit of over like a fat rat. So now you know how you can get from some kind of intuitive classification of the things around you into classes into something as arbitrary as male spoons and female forks and neuter knives. How does a language get that way? Well, it's gradual because language has a way of just crawling into little places it doesn't need to go, people making analogies that they didn't need to make. And next thing you know, you have a mess which is somehow learnable. You wouldn't think that babies and toddlers could pick things like that up. But actually, it's adults who can't. The plasticity of the human brain at a young age is amazing. And when it comes to these noun classes, there are cases in the world where it really does stump you that even the most plastic of this thing we call a brain could possibly allow a whole community of people to be doing something the same way, which from the outside looks so maddeningly random. So to give you a sense of how noun classes can go in languages that have really been left alone, my favorite example is Nuer. Nuer is a language spoken in Sudan. It's Ways of dividing nouns into classes ends up seeming like it just makes no sense at all. It almost seems like you have to just know how to do it with each noun by itself. It's really frightening and marvelous stuff. So what I mean is this. First of all, in good old new air, when you have a noun, you can have it in its vanilla way. So you're going to say something like book. Then you have it in its possessive way, genitive way. So we would say books, like the book's cover. So the possessive. But then you have something that's roughly on the book or at the book. So you have the vanilla, then there's the possessive, and then there's the at. Then you can do both of those things in the plural. And so books, and then the book's titles, and then let's go to the books, if you wanted to say something like that. So you have those sorts of things. So already this is feeling kind of like in Latin-y territory. This is the New Air language of Sudan. But here's the thing. How you distinguish this vanilla, and then plural, and then the possessive from this locative, this one that's about in and at, how you distinguish all those things just varies randomly from word to word. So let's take the word for rank. The word for rank is gatot, not galgadot, but gatot. Okay, that's vanilla, just 
rank. Now, if you want to say your rank's significance, then you have to put this ending on. And the ending is ka. And notice I didn't say ka, I said ka. You have to make it breathy. There's a difference in nowhere between ah and ah, and it can make the difference between words' meanings. It's really neat. In any case, the way that you would say rank, just vanilla, is gatot. The way you would say your rank's significance, and you say ranks, would be gatot ka. But actually, there's another little change. It isn't gatot ka, it's gatot ka. And so that all becomes breathy in that way, too. Now, if you want to say on your rank, you know, stop relying on your rank, something like that, then it's the same thing. It's gatotka. Okay. But if you want to say ranks, if you want to make it a vanilla plural, then you go from gatot to gatutni. Notice the vowels get longer. So gatot, then gatutni. So it changes from all to u and it gets long. Then you have this little suffix ni. So gatutni. And if you want to say of the ranks, then it's ga tutni. If you want to say on the ranks, ga tutni. That's kind of the normal way where if you're going to make it possessive or if you're going to make it about being on or at something, you add this ka, but then there's some other little mess up that happens in the word. And then if you want the plural things, then there's some other little change and you stick ni on the end. Okay. Now, that's bad enough. Bad as in complicated for anybody who learns this language as a second one, which luckily not many people do. But that's how rank went. Now, bump is different. So the word for bump is roñ. So that's a breathy O, roñ, like that. Now, what do you do for the possessive and then the locative? You say ronka, ronka. But this time it's a long ka. So it's not just ka, it's ka, ronka, ronha. Now then in the plural, you don't have the same thing as with rank. In rank, to have a vanilla plural, you stuck a knee on it and things changed. Well, with bump, things change in a different way itself. So from rong, you go rong, and so the breathy vowel gets longer. The difference between bump and bumps, between bump in the road and bumps on your head, is rong and rong. And then you don't have the knee at the end, not if it's a vanilla plural, but you do use it if it's the possessive or that on or at plural. So you just have the knees there. So that's different. And you might think, well, okay, we'll call the first one feminine or because this doesn't seem to have anything to do with biological gender. We'll say that rank is sort of your noun class one. But no, because here's potato. And the word for potato is tots. Okay, so just tots. Now, if you want to say the potatoes bumps, well, potatoes is tatska. Okay. Now, what about on the potato? Is that going to be tatska? No, it's just tats. Nobody knows why. Nobody cares. And then in the plural, you really do just stick the knee on. Tatsni. And then it's the same thing for the possessive plural and the locative plural. That's the way potato goes. So that must be class three. I could go on and on and on. You never know what the language is going to do in terms of how it handles a particular word. And if you're going to divide the words into classes, what you get is 25 or more. And it has nothing to do with meaning. It's not about whether things are round. It's not about whether things are long, whether things are human or anything like that. It's just that each noun patterns that way differently. Those are noun classes. And to speak new air is to know how to handle all 25 plus of these noun classes, to know what every single noun belongs to. There's some patterns. There's some rules of thumb. Matthew Behrman and some other people have worked out how human beings could actually handle something like this, all doing it the same way in communities over many, many generations. But you've got to work it out. You've got to do statistical analysis to make sense of it. This, ladies and gentlemen, depending on what you want to call it, is gender. And so you have all these things. They're different for no real reason. It's not about men and women. You can call it gender, but really it's just noun classes. And this is the same challenge that you have when you're dealing with, say, bateau for boat is male in French, while female is lune for loon. You just kind of have to know. And after a while, you get used to it. But imagine if you were dealing with 25 differences. Nowhere is like that, and it is not alone. So there is your answer as to why there is this meaningless gender 
these meaningless noun classes in European languages. For example, in New Air, it started with something that was much simpler. It was basically about how you mark something as plural, but very gradually, step by step, it went a little crazy, and it went crazy in different ways, depending on how words sounded, and next thing you knew, you had all these different classes. And what this means is that you can see from New Air how much worse it can get than in French and German and in Russian. And you can see that English not having this makes it naked. English is a naked Indo-European language. It's holding a fig leaf over its parts. Meaningless gender is normal. In fact, meaningless gender is what languages do because as long as toddlers can learn it, the language will go there and it will stay there unless otherwise informed. So it's less why a language has meaningless gender than why it doesn't have it. If you approach a language that you don't know, you should expect that either you have to deal with dum-dum gender of some kind, although it's going to come as numeral classifiers or noun classes or the like, or it's going to mess you up with the tone, or it's going to have both. If a language spares you both grammatical gender of some kind and tone, then usually it got that way by accident. So that's my lesson for you all for today. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a Steely Dan song, and it isn't. It's technically Donald Fagan. This is from his wonderful, wonderful, wonderful album, The Nightfly. But, you know, it sounds like Steely Dan. This is early 80s. This is me in college, and I thought this was so clean and so smart. You know, it still is. I highly recommend, as I think I did when I first played this on this show back in 1968. The video was very cute. It was animated. And just listen to what it would have been like or what it could have been like if you actually wound up in one of those bunkers underground. That's actually not the happiest thought. But anyway, here it is. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. She's got a touch of Tuesday well. She's wearing ambush and a frame.